and welcome to Season 3 of the Monarch Team Performance Podcast. I'm your host, John Sillis. For Season 3, guys, I'm really happy to kick off with our first episode chatting to Jonathan Pope and Craig Weller, who are co-authors of Building the Lead, a book which details the system they've used for over a decade to train people for their special operations selection in half a dozen countries, with a success rate of over 90%. They also co-own Ethos Colorado, a performance training facility based in Denver, Colorado. Jonathan began his coaching career as a former collegiate athlete on the wrong side of six different surgeries. He learned how to develop athletes with an eye towards long-term resilience, where he was in the process of rebuilding his own physical performance. He's now a competitive BJJ grappler and a backcountry ski mountaineer. Craig is a former U.S. Navy SWIC and private military contractor who learned the value of skill acquisition in stressful environments when he joined the Navy without knowing how to swim and volunteered for special operations selection. In this episode, Craig and Jonathan talk about how they created Building the Elite, the common pitfalls when preparing for self-selection, and the difference between trend for selection and trend post-selection. Good afternoon, Craig and Jonathan. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. No problem, guys. Thanks a lot. Um, obviously, as I reached out to you guys originally, I've seen a lot of stuff you guys put up regarding like helping guys prepare for the you know SF courses and stuff and your backgrounds within SNC. So I was really keen to bring you both on and just chat to you a little bit and just see how you prepare guys physically and mentally for the, the process of selection. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Sweet. So just before we get into it, guys, could you just give us a little bit of like a, an overview of you know where your careers started out and you know where you guys are currently at and how you guys came to meet? Um, if we can just kick off probably with you, Jonathan, and then we'll come to you, Craig. Sure. Yeah, sounds great. So my name is Jonathan Pope. Um, Along with Craig Weller, who we'll talk here in a second, <laughs> we co-authored a book called Building the Elite and then started a business around that, where we specialize in preparing individuals for special operations selection programs. So things like uh, in, in, in America, like Special Forces, Navy SEALs, um, you know, in the UK, like SBS and SAS, things like that. But we've worked with guys in different branches all over the world. So my background is more in traditional strength conditioning. I did my undergrad in that. Um, I was a college athlete, and that's what initially interested me in going down that career field. And then once I got out of college, I started my own business. Um, I was just realized I was a terrible employee and wanted to kind of experiment and try my own process and try to figure out and not just kind of go with the status quo, but um, figure out something that was a little bit more effective. You know, I, as an athlete, have gone down the traditional strength conditioning field, and it really didn't work out too well. I ended up having a bunch of surgeries. Um, and so I knew that just doing the traditional path wasn't necessarily going to be the best method. So I started my own business around that time. I met Craig. Um, we started working together. We initially, we eventually started our own training facility together. Whenever that was, it was like about 2010, 2011. Yeah. Yeah. Something around then. Um, and then we've been, we started working with individuals preparing for special operations. I've been doing that the last decade. Um, and then eventually, once we felt like we had a system that we could consistently produce results and we understood what we were really looking at, that's when we decided to write the book and then eventually put that out. Um, and now we're putting out a lot of information and training tr to try to help people prepare more appropriately for special operations. Um, and as for me, I, I came up through the, the military background. I did not do the college athlete academic path at all. 
Um, I enlisted when I was still 17 in the Navy and volunteered for a special operations unit uh, without knowing how to swim and learned how to swim by taking the screen test, uh, which is like the first you know, physical test that you take in the, in the pipeline. And I'd fail it really quickly and get pulled out out of the pool, sometimes physically, and they had sent me to stroke development where I'd learn how to swim. And I had three shots at that and I picked up the combat side stroke or combat swimmer stroke just well enough to, to squeak under the, the screen test and I passed the swim by seven seconds on my last try. Went from that into the, the pipeline and sort of full-time training. And the whole time I was behind the power curve struggling to learn how to swim. And um, I got to where I was really happy as long as I was not in the water. Like I didn't care how bad of a beating it was on land as long as I could breathe. And I made it through, I was in a program called SWIC, the Special Warfare Combatant Crewman, which is uh, like the boat guys in the Navy. Mm-hmm. And I was about two weeks from graduating the selection course the first time and failed a time swim by a minute and two seconds because my swim buddy and I were far enough along that they knew we weren't going to quit. We had like the, the psychological raw material. Um, they saw it as a performance issue and tried an experiment and they rolled us over into the BUDS program, uh, SEAL training, which is they have a program there for guys who are rolled out of out of buds for either performance issues or injuries. It's a it's a rehab and a development course where you work on your specific issue and they have actual performance coaching. And I spent four months there as as a buds brown shirt student and it was the first performance coaching that I'd had where up to that point everyone just told me to work harder to just put out more, to just put in more time. And I was extremely aerobically fit, but I was just learning how to work harder at swimming really badly. And in this program for the first time, I had someone who gave me at least a dozen different specific actionable things to do better. And I had a mental model and a feedback loop. And this guy would stand at the end of the lap lane. And every time I hit the wall, if I did something wrong and whatever I was practicing, he'd tap me on the top of the head and tell me to do it better. Um, and I improved more in my first two months there than I had in the previous year and a half of getting my ass kicked. Um, and so from there, that, that was kind of a turning point in how I viewed performance and coaching and um, just the, the special operations world in general. Because as I was there, like I, I spent so much time in that pipeline because after four months in BUDS, I went back and started SWIC over and finally graduated my second time through with the course. I'd been there for two and a half years before I made it through. So I saw thousands of people start that course and fail. Um, and nearly every of the, every one of them could swim better than I could. Mm-hmm. So I became really interested in why, what it is that makes people successful in these kind of settings, like special forces selection or BUDS or SWIC or whatever, uh, because it's not just physical. You know, like if it was purely physical, I wouldn't have made it past my first day. Um, but there's, there's a lot more to it than that. And that's the road that led me down from as a special operator, like coaching people and learning how to train people in limited settings with very little equipment, learning how to make people strong and resilience, resilient without, you know, a college weight room or toys. Um, started doing that as a civilian when I got out. And that's, I was about a year or two into that when I met John and we saw eye to eye on a lot of that stuff and started working together and developing the methods that eventually became ethos the gym we started in colorado and then the principles behind building the elite which is the book that we wrote on how we train special ops guys now that's awesome that's awesome guys so obviously what was it just a chance meeting you guys uh we're in the same area in the same sort of gym sort of uh, setting or were you guys familiar with each other's work prior to bumping into each other and then connecting yeah we were 
we'd, we'd heard about each other a little bit. I, I had just moved down to Denver, which is where John was. I was sort of franchising a gym from the first one that I had started. And John just emailed me asking about business stuff. Like he was, he was starting, he wanted to start his own business and he wanted to know how I'd started the first one that I did. And coincidentally, my business partner at the time and trading partner was out on his honeymoon and I needed somebody to work out with. So I asked him to just come by the gym and we started working out together and uh, really fit guy, you know, like had, had all the raw material mentally. He was a power athlete from college, so he, he couldn't really take a beating. He was good at like jumping up and down on things and throwing baseballs. Um, <laughs> so at first, uh, like me and Marshall, my, my buddy who was a scout sniper, another special operations guy could outwork John in the gym. Like we could go through these terrible workouts where John's ability to recover would eventually fail him. Like he, he just couldn't keep up. <laughs> and while we were like learning about this, this stuff, these physical limits, we started exchanging a lot of books. And John was the first guy I think ever who just read all of the books and then had a bunch of his own and had that like growth mindset thing plus conscientiousness where he took a piece of information and ran with it and built on it and learned from it and extrapolated the principles necessary to turn it into a system. And I, uh, Marshall and I both ended up taking off to do contract work and worked as private security guys in Iraq for about two years. And John, that whole time, because he couldn't keep up with us in conditioning workouts, spent that time turning himself from a power athlete into an endurance athlete and uh, was doing like these triple bypass, terrible endurance races on road bikes and stuff and went from this 220 pound heavy dude to someone who could pedal a bike for eight hours competitively and so we got back and he'd spent two years dedicated to like developing himself specifically looking at his own vulnerabilities um, which psychologically is a really useful and unique thing um, and it was one of the things that made me want to like work with John and one of the reasons we ended up partnering up and starting building the elite because he had the the raw material to mm -hmm put together these kind of attitudes that are useful in building special operations guys. Nice, nice. And saying that then, so for you, John, how did you find that transition from going the more traditional S&C model, college athlete sort of thing, and making that transition into this sort of field within the tactical space and learn you know, the, the diverse requirements these guys have? Yeah, so as I mentioned before, you know, I was a college athlete and, and my career ended with a string of surgeries um, you end up having six surgeries overall, like on various joints that I managed to destroy. And, you know, I was always one of the growing up and in high school and college, I was always one of the hardest working guys, you know, in college, I remember I'd show up early and work with athletic training staff because I was beat up all the time. Um, and then I'd stay after and work extra with the strength conditioning staff. Um, and I followed the advice of all those coaches when I got hurt, it was, what the PT said. Um, then eventually when I had surgery, I did everything the MD said and it just didn't work out. And I really wanted to know what went wrong. So in college, I kind of studied everything. I did pre-med, I did nutrition, I did exercise science. Um, I, I helped out um, PhD students during their dissertations, doing research. And then eventually I met the right guy, which was um, this guy, Kimi Sato, who was doing his PhD in biomechanics. Um, and he had a background as a strength conditioning coach, but he had also studied just a ton of different fields. And he was the first guy I ever met who combined many different fields of knowledge, like strength conditioning, physiology, physical therapy, biomechanics, nutrition, everything. Um, and he'd get the hard cases. So whenever 
the athletic training staff didn't know what was going on, they'd send him to Kimmy and then Kimmy would unwind and figure out what the limiting factor was, put him through a whole barrage of tests and then work with him for a month or two and then spit him out the other side and they'd be in much better shape. Um, and so what I learned during that was that the traditional model didn't work for everybody mm -hmm. and that specialization wasn't necessarily the path to understanding human performance. And if you wanted to understand or solve the complex problem of consistently creating high, a high level performance in the people you worked with, then you needed to study a variety of fields and combine those principles into a coherent model. And so that's kind of what set me on that path. And that's what led me to working with Craig. And then when I met Craig, he brought like a very different perspective and different fields of knowledge and a very different background um, that just like filled a bunch of gaps in my knowledge that I had never considered and never thought of. And so it worked really well. And we've just kind of continued on that trajectory over the last decade trying to learn, like identify limiting factors in our knowledge, why we weren't being successful and then plugging those gaps and then just building this really coherent model. And that's what we eventually published in the book. I think kind of as we, as we, yeah, as we said earlier, it's that it's not just physical. Um, mm -hmm. Like if you run the statistics, if someone scores in the top 95% of their screen test, when they when they start selection, so they're the top five percent of the class physically. Their odds of success are the highest, but they're still only about one in three. Um, so physicality on its own is not that predictable. And if if you're going to be successful, or if you want to have at least a high probability of success, a lot of that success is going to come from mental and emotional factors. It's it's not just your ability to exercise better than the other guy. It's your ability to manage um, fatigue and stress, your ability to tolerate ambiguity, because um, it's a thing where a lot of conventional athletes, a lot of people who are you know, D1 collegiate, whatever, water polo players or guys who are triathletes who are physically seem really well suited for these courses, they're also used to positive feedback and certainty. And they're used to knowing when something's going to end, what's gonna happen in the middle, and if they do good at it, they're going to get a high five, high five and a cookie or whatever when it's over. And in, in soft selection, none of that's true. You never know what's coming next, how long it's going to last, or, or what the light at the end of the tunnel is going to turn out to be. And a lot of times the light at the end of the tunnel is a train and it just gets worse. Um, and then even if you finish a run at the very start of the pack, you get the same serving of push-ups and wet and sandy that everyone else does. It doesn't matter. So you can't physically win like you're you're only playing for a tie and and people who are coming from a conventional athletic background um, find that really stressful because their way of viewing the world their way of winning the game doesn't work anymore and that's one of the reasons you see guys like uh, I had a friend who called himself the fattest kid to ever graduate buds who struggled every day just barely hung on to the back of the pack and everyone he ever did it's why you see guys like him make it through the course and earn the pin where guys who started out with like the best performance numbers in the class quit two weeks in because they're stressed out and they can't handle it. Um, so yeah, the, the short version is, is people that are ignoring the mental and the emotional aspects of preparation are, are making some of the biggest mistakes. And um, focusing on the second thing is focusing on the harder is better thing. Um, and confusing the test for the training. 
Um, we've seen that a couple times recently. We learned that some of the tier one courses have had their their curricula leaked, and there are there are companies out there that sell training programs that are just based on exactly what a shitty day in the selection course is going to look like, and they basically reverse engineer it. Like I'm making air quotes where they build people up in just an arithmetic progression towards simulating a shitty day in selection and in, in exactly what this course is going to look like. So they're training by taking the test and making the test incrementally harder. And that doesn't actually work. Um, it's like trying to learn to be a lawyer by taking the LSAT every day, by taking the test to be a lawyer every day. Like That's not where you learn those skills. It's where you apply them. Um, and if you're not focused on building the component skills and the capabilities that lead you to passing the test later on, then you're on a path for injury and burnout. And that's the most common thing we see where people are just testing themselves over and over without developing themselves in order to take that test or in order to pass the test in the future. That's interesting to hear there, Craig. And I mean, obviously, like you say, the guys who come in is, you know, probably higher up on the chain of being you know that physical capability but then the mental side they just don't have that built in yet because they're so used to almost like a predictive environment from the sporting model sort of thing so on that then what would you say the the biggest not only physical qualities guys need to possess but the mental qualities they need to possess as well to get through soft selection yeah so i'll kick it off i'll go over the uh, physical qualities so you know the first thing is that you have to move well. Um, when you're rigid, you can't compensate in you know, the same tissues, whether that's muscles, uh, joints, any soft tissue are loaded over and over in the same ways. And basically you don't have a way to cheat. And as Craig said, the thing that's hard about selection is that no particular event is, is that overwhelmingly difficult. It's that it just never ends. So it's one event bleeds into the next, into the next day after day after day. And so, you can do really well in these tests independently, but if you can't do them back to back to back to back, where there's just no way you're phys physically gonna win, you're going to break down. And when you do start breaking down, if you don't have a way to compensate and start adjusting your movement to stress tissues in different ways, then your likelihood of injury goes through the roof. And so there's a sweet spot there where you wanna move well, but you're obviously, most operators aren't ballerinas either. You don't get bonus points for being able to do the splits, but you need to be able to move well enough to distribute load throughout your body. Um, the next thing is you have to have a huge aerobic base. Most of the events are aerobic in nature and it's specifically important because the more aerobically efficient you are, the less everything costs. So if I'm doing an event and one guy's at his threshold and another guy is 10% below his aerobic threshold, the person who's sub 10%, that single event costs them less. The recovery from that event costs them less. And then it takes them longer and longer to break down under fatigue to eventually get past their threshold and to the point of failure. So the more aerobically fit you are, the less every event, but it's more the cascade of events, the less everything costs you. All recoveries aerobic in nature so you have to be very, very aerobically fit. And specifically, it's, it's your ability to work at really low intensities for long durations of metabolized fat as your primary, primary energy source. Because most of what you're doing, like there's no amount of food, this isn't a triathlon, you don't get to carry exercise candy with you. You don't get to say, time out, you know, my blood sugars are low, give me a goo, and then I'll continue on with my five mile run here. You just it just keeps going and so if you can't 
metabolize the energy you need via aerobic fat metabolism, then you're going to crash and that's going to be a very big problem. Um, and not only that, but the stress of that, which we can talk about later, nutrition, that's why it plays a role in it. And part of this being specific about your training process is really, really important because then you've been there and done that and you understand the pacing and the outputs at which you know you can keep going indefinitely no matter how bad you feel. Um, and then the relative stress is much lower. So the next physical quality is relative strength. You know, you're gonna have to carry heavy things, boats, rucks, logs, other humans, you have to carry yourself. Pretty much all soft courses have obstacle courses and things of that nature. It's all about moving your own body across um, vast distances over and over and over again. Um, and so you need a decent amount of relative strength. And as you break down with fatigue, the more relative strength you have, you, the more of a buffer you have. Um, meaning that all of those things feel less heavy because you're working at a relative less lower percentage of your max output than somebody who's weaker than you. So again, that, that, that's one of the other one. And then the last thing is to go in healthy. And I know that sounds really obvious, but most people prepare really poorly and they crush themselves pre-selection and they think harder is better. And they are just absolutely like redlining it in the months leading up to selection. And they go in already beat up. Um, whether that's physiologically, you can, you can look at a lot of different levels, but it just increases their injury risk. It's already something where you're probably not going to get to the other side of selection healthy. It's just how badly injured are you and can you continue? Um, and so if you go in already beat up, then it's unlikely you're going to make it to the other side without something catastrophic happening or just making it physiologically so difficult that internally it feels far more stressful than it should otherwise. And then I'll turn over to Craig. You can talk a little bit about the psychological aspects. Um, psychologically, the main things that we're looking for, we use what's called a big five profile or an ocean profile where um, you're just looking at core attributes or core behavioral traits. And the two that, that are really predictive or that really matter are conscientiousness, which is basically your ability to do the right thing when the right thing is hard. Um, conscientious people show up on time, they're punctual, they're organized, they have their shit together, um, they pay attention to little details and they don't forget things and they, they see it as being a big deal. Um, they, they take care of stuff. Um, people who are low in consciousness are the ones who will let things slide and they're not really worried about it. And you know, like if, if my gear is missing a piece or something's rusty, uh, whatever, it's, it's not that much of a problem. Those are the guys who, who tend to wash out and a lot of what you're seeing in a selection course like all the inspections that they do where you have you you know like your swimmer inspection you look at your little life vest thing you make sure that your co2 cartridge is perfectly clean and all your little knots are tied perfectly and all of that your room inspections where they look for any tiny little dust bunny they can find in your room like they don't actually care about your ability to clean your room but they're looking for your conscientiousness. They, they want to see that you can pay attention to small details and be organized and careful in a chaotic, stressful environment. And that's the generalized skill that they're trying to assess for that, that will extrapolate out into operational life. Like no one does uniform inspections downrange or gets in a gunfight and like polishes their way out of it. Um, and the second thing is emotional stability or low neuroticism. And uh, neuroticism is essentially like fighting invisible monsters in your head. Um, neurotic people are prone to anxiety and uh, a behavior called rumination where you just turn over on negative thoughts over and over kind of unproductively. 
um, where emotionally stable people have a stronger sense of self-identity that's less disturbed by external events. So if something bad happens to them, um, they don't personalize it. They don't think it means that they're a bad person and that they always will be. They just see it as a bad thing that happened, like the weather passing over and, and they as an individual are okay. Um, the a related thing there is a strong sense or an internalized sense of control where the people who are more likely to be successful in selection um, play an active role in their worlds. And they see their circumstances and their path through them as being dictated by their own decision-making, where someone with an externalized sense of control is someone who's basically floating down the river of life, getting bumped along as they go, and the world happens to them. Um, you can see that in people's language when they talk about their life when they when they express their narrative of what's happening to them like if someone with an externalized locus of control will say um my my back did something or or my knee went out the other day um like it's the injury happened to them like it was something that attacked them where someone with an internalized locus of control will say i hurt my back they don't say my back got injured or my knee went out, they say, I hurt my knee, or I did something to my back, where they're the person responsible for it, which means they're also the person who can fix it and deal with it. Um, and if you just start with those things, uh, high conscientiousness, high emotional stability, and an internal locus of control, you have a pretty strong profile of, of the people who have the raw material to make it through one of these courses. That's really interesting to hear, guys, just both from the, the physical and the mental side of things of, you know, what it truly takes to get through those sort of pipelines. Um, obviously, it's a very arduous process for a lot of people going through and like, you know, to get into whatever unit is you're, you're trying to get into through that pipeline. It's a, it's a long process. Um, I was wondering what you guys think of, you know, what is the main differences you'd say between the guys who are you know, turning up initially who want to go for selection, who want to make into one of these units or these regiments, and then, you know, they're successful, they make into that unit or that regiment. How does that train and change for them? And what is the mindset shift they need to make at that point as well? So I might need to clarify the question. Like, what's the, what are the initial things that we see that enable someone early on to be successful? Like, what are the initial red flags or positive factors? Uh, so just more so that, that mindset shift of like how they need to approach their training and how they view things as well, Craig. I mean, more so from, you know, they've, they've made it through that selection uh, process and now they're actually working as an operator within their oh, regiment. Oh, I, I see. I got it. Yeah. So the, the big difference there is nobody has to break a door down in selection. Um, operators, as someone who's an active duty, already post-selection special operator, will never have to run 15 miles a day for a week wearing a shitty rucksack. Um, somewhere out there, that's probably gonna happen like once, but for the most part, you can, you can shift quite a bit away from the endurance work capacity, beat down tolerance kind of emphasis that you have for selection um, and, and move more towards size, strength, and power. Um, it depends a little on the job requirements. Like there's a wide range of jobs within the soft world you may have some recon guys. You have some people who, are need, who need to do long infill and exfills who still need to be able to carry a ruck really fast for a long way. Um, but you're going to have other guys that are going to arrive in a helicopter, fast rope down and smash the door down, and they don't need to be able to run a marathon anymore. 
they need to be able to smash someone <laughs> or smash a thing. And and so you can you can emphasize yeah size, strength, and power quite a lot more with the active duty operators most of the time. And you also have an emphasis on rehab, basically like fixing all of the damage that they did to themselves getting through selection. Um, we were just having this conversation with one of our, our clients, a candidate. Um, the guys who are successful in selection generally don't make it through uns unscathed. Like they're not making it through with no injuries, no pain, no dysfunction. Um, they just don't mind or it doesn't matter as much to them as their goal of succeeding. So there are guys who are getting through with torn muscles, broken bones, weird movement patterns, like all kinds of issues um, that have to be dealt with. And they've, they'll have that to deal with. And they've also probably turned into aerobic monster work capacity machines who have no strength or power left or very little. Um, so you have to generally convert them back over to like, like reintroducing some strength and power to their lives um, while putting Humpty back together and, and fixing all the little injuries that they've acquired, the weird movement patterns that they developed, the compensations that they had to use to make it through the course. Um, you need to shake those things out and kind of get them back to a neutral baseline so that you can make someone really strong, but you're not building that strength on a foundation that's going to break them. Oh, that's awesome to hear, guys. And then obviously, yeah, just that, that mindset shift, like you say, for some of the guys who are just like, you don't need to be, you know, bashing out huge endurance runs anymore based upon what your job's going to suddenly entail down, down the line as well. Um, one thing I was really keen to chat to you guys about was obviously through the course of your business, you've had the opportunity to work with people not only in the US and Canada, but also into Europe as well. Obviously, you mentioned before about guys here in the UK going for selections. I was just wondering, you know, based on that, like for the geography side of things, do you see any big differences, you know, both from a physical standpoint and the mental standpoint of guys coming in, you know, depending where they're from? I know here in the UK, obviously our sports system is very different to what you guys have over in the US regards to like college sport and that. So maybe some of the guys here, I'm guessing, don't have that same sort of big sport and background or that high level, like D1 sport and background. That is true. You'll you'll find more guys with a, like a professionalized preparation background, um, but it's not always that helpful as long as they have the, the basic raw material. Uh, in a lot of cases, I mean, aside from the psychological stuff that we talked about where the, that professionalized sporting background makes them very dependent on positive feedback and um, certainty, um, you also just have a level of specialization often that doesn't transfer over well, or they've been over-specialized. Like this is John's background where he was specialized to the point that basically his body was exploited by the time he was 17 or 18. And he had so many injuries to deal with that he was broken for a long time. And we see that quite a bit with guys who have come through first, like the high level high school thing. And then if they're at the collegiate level or the post high school competitive level, they've been, exploiting themselves like trying to win trying to win trying to win for so long that they've eroded their foundation and they're uh, physically vulnerable and they're they're really prone to injury um where you know we see other guys who come through a more diverse athletic background it does matter that they've been doing something um you can't take someone off the couch and like take the xbox out of their hands and then just send them off to sas selection and have them succeed they have to have some kind of a background but 
the the strict professionalization of it or the competitiveness of it um, is less important than a lot of people may think as long as they have the fundamental raw material. And in that sense, I think because it's somewhat a self-selected thing or there's a restricted range bias, um, there's a lot less variability with the special ops candidates that we see from country to country than there is just within the population in general. Like this is part of why our success rate is so high. We screen guys in advance and the odds of us taking a candidate, someone that we take on as a one-to-one -one client is about the same regardless of what country they're from, but it's also a low chance. Like we only take a small number of people because only a small number have that initial profile um, that's going to give them a high chance of success. That's cool. And obviously you mentioned there about like you, you take guys on in a one-to-one -one basis sort of thing. So what was that process of guys just reaching out to you and engaging and then coming on onto that pathway with you guys? Yeah, we make it, and it's actually been more difficult in the past than it probably is today because we have a much larger audience and, and bigger footprint now. So th there's far more people that are aware of us and kind of come across us in happenstance and on Instagram or some other social media or a friend who shares a post because um, we're just much more visible than we were. But previously, um, they had to have been doing some kind of research, usually a Google search of some kind or having found us through some other avenue, found our website, read our stuff, decided it was worth it, email us. They email us, they send an application. It's like a 25-page application. They fill out the application, most of which I don't, neither of us care about. We just want to honestly see if they'll do the application. So like, as we go through this process, we're, we're testing for the things we talked about, like conscientiousness. So is your application detail-oriented? Do you write out, are your answers well thought out? Are they comprehensive? Have you actually put a lot of effort into what you're doing? When we ask for specific measurements, did you take the time to actually go do those measurements or did you just ballpark it? And those all tell us a lot about something, so about someone. Um, and then we make it, yeah, it's just a giant pain in the ass. And then they have to do like two or three weeks of onboarding. And so by the time they've started, it, it says a lot about that person. They're already most likely have a lot of that kind of initial, the things that we cannot coach, they're not trainable or at that point in their life or are gonna take a really, really long time to develop if they're an individual who doesn't have them already and they need to go spend the time doing that on their own before they come back and try to work with us. So that's, that's, that's the general process and that's part of the reason why um, we've been so successful is because we were intentionally screening for all the things that we knew were important. Um, and then we get somebody with all the raw underlying capabilities or skills or, or just qualities. And then you put it through them an intelligent program and, and dial in any limiting factors and they have a really high chance of success. That's cool guys. And I mean, for guys who reach out to you, you know, who, go through that process and they're successful to work with you guys. How long do you typically work with guys in the lead up to their, their, um, you know, their pipelines? Yeah, usually it's six to 12 uh, months as they're preparing that we have worked with some individuals for longer. Like I worked with a, a guy who went through SBS selection, sniper selection. I worked, I've worked with him and he's currently an operator for like three or four years. Um, but he's kind of an outlier most of them are six to 12 months they ship out and they go off to selection and then we hear from them a couple months later 
So um, what, what does that pathway look like for the guys who come through then once they've um, approached you? Do you just do a full analysis of where they're at physically and then look for the weak points and where those gaps can be filled? Yeah, so yeah. basically, we, I mean, we, we have a, I mean, we talk about this in the book and we expand upon it pretty, pretty thoroughly. So, I mean, the most important thing are the mental and emotional factors. So that's largely what we're screening for through the application process. Now, where they're at physically obviously matters, you know, big red flags with like lots of injuries in the past, um, things of that nature are definitely things we want to look into and, and see how severe they're. So for example, myself having been through this process, I could have probably rebuilt myself more efficiently now than I did when I was going through that process, but it took years and years. It wasn't an overnight process. When you get that over-specialized and you're that kind of wound up in the patterns and your physiology is so driven towards one doing one task, it, it's not easy to undo um, and so if somebody is kind of that far down the spectrum, then they need to go do some work on their own. Um, and it's going to take some time. So yeah, we initially just look mostly at the psychological factors, like how, how well thought out is their application? How much did they actually think about this? Um, are there measures specific? And then there's some specific questions that we tune into, like asking about the challenges in their life, what they've done in the process. Like, have they been training consistently without anybody watching? That's a big indicator. So if they've been putting in years and years of work, finding training and doing on their own, as Craig talked about, just being an athlete in a background, it's, it's honestly not that hard having been a college athlete. Like you just show up and you, you basically have to do what they tell you to do. There's really no way around it. And so, you know, psychologically, that's not difficult. Whereas if I have this abstract goal that's years down the road, if I want to be a special operator or whatever, you want to do in life and you're showing up every day figuring out what to do having a semi-intelligent approach doing that thing even when you don't want to do it when you're not motivated when no one's watching and you you've gotten yourself a decent chunk of the way that says a lot about you as a person and that tells me that, that person isn't just doing this on a whim they're far more dedicated to a long-term process they're conscientious it says a lot about them as a human and it means whatever limiting factors they may have they're probably things that we can address and help steer them in the right direction. And so those are the main things that we primarily look for. And then again, we take them through an onboarding process where we just get a really good idea what their physiology looks like, um, how well they move. Um, because all these things that we've been talking about, it context matters. And so we have to see how they actually apply them in real life. Like I can say, how strong are you? But what does that squat look like? Are you doing death metal? you know, listening to death metal, just sniff some ammonia and someone punched you in the face and then you did that deadlift and your form was terrible. Or like, did you do that really calmly and cleanly with really nice movement? So those are things that tell you more than just what the number itself means, if that makes sense. And so those are the things we start looking at and then we can really hone in on the details and shift the emphasis, not just what they're doing, but how they're gonna go about doing everything. Oh, that's awesome to hear, guys. It sounds like an awesome process to go through as well. Um, obviously, I just want to take it back a bit, guys. At the start, you mentioned just when you first met, you guys would trade books back and forth as well. And it's one thing I always ask, so I'm always intrigued with what people are doing for their own development. So on that, could you guys give us a, a book, an app, or website recommendation that you personally find useful either for your own development or your own education? Oh, we have a ton of them. Um... 
I mean, really, if you look, if you get our book, we, we reference just about everything. And at the end of every chapter, there's a list of the references we use. It'd be a good place to, to go if you're really after an education and, and the stuff we talk about. Um, but if you want a starting place, at least from my perspective, that's unusual in the industry, I would start with the book Thinking in Systems by Donella Meadows. Um, that one's very approachable and probably the best summary there is out there on systems thinking, and that's really useful. If you want to go deep into that, you could read Science, Strategy, and War by Franz Osinga, which is about John Boyd and his work. Um, or on the uh, the skill acquisition, developing expertise stuff, the Cambridge Handbook of Developing Expertise is really good. And the Development of Professional Expertise is another handbook that's uh, Kay Anders Erickson and Friends. And I know John has his own list. That's my systems and strategy kind of stuff and skill acquisition. Cool. Yeah, that, that's a really good place to start. Another really good book is Surfing Uncertainty by Clark. Um, so he really goes a lot into how humans basically acquire skills, how they, why they move the way they do, how they solve problems, how their brain works in terms of predicting um, and then solving for those problems. And that's influenced a lot of our thought process and aligns with all the other stuff we talked about. Um, and then anything put out by Bowden Second, who is one of the co-founders of Omega Wave, um, he talks a lot about adaptation and biological systems and just how complex the human body is and how the different systems within your human body like work together to actually create the outcomes that we think of in terms of fitness. I um, mean, he helps break it down in a way that it is far more useful than the kind of compartmentalized way that most people with a traditional strength conditioning background are taught to think of human physiology and performance. Cool. That's awesome, guys. Thank you very much for that. That's an awesome list. Um, I'll definitely pop them in our show notes as well so guys can access into them. For anyone who's been listening here, guys, it's been really informative. If they wanted to reach out to you guys with any questions or even just to inquire about potentially working with you guys, you know, what's the best way they can do that? Uh, I mean, our biggest presence is uh, Instagram at Building the Elite, and our website gets uh, quite a lot of people running through it as well. So if you if you just go to our website, it's buildingtheelite.com, and you can find contact info there, uh, and you can get in touch with us. And we do read and respond to everything that comes in. So if, if someone has a question, needs something, they can email us through the BTE website, and, and we'll get back to them on that. Cool. That's awesome, guys. I'll make sure I'll drop them in the show notes as well. Uh, once again, guys, you know, thank you very much for giving up your time to sit down and chat to me. It's been really informative and, you know, really interesting to see. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it, guys. Hi, guys. Really hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Monarch Team Performance Podcast. I just wanted to say thank you for your continued support to the show. We're slowly growing each week and getting more and more downloads, which is truly incredible for such a niche-specific podcast. To continue supporting us, can I ask you to do me a simple favor? First of all, subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're using so you can receive each new episode as soon as it's released. Secondly, if you found something educational, if it made you see a different perspective, or if you took something away from this podcast that made you better, please leave us a review as it means a lot to me, and please share the show. This will help us to grow the show and really get this information out to a lot more people.